called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a, section, a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the instruction that we receive from it, the blessing that we receive from it. We know that your word is life transforming. And so, Lord, we humbly ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help the preacher as we move from the reading of your word to the preaching Please help the preacher to bring your word with all of its blessing upon your people. And Lord, help us all to receive from you this evening. Speak to us, we humbly ask. Send your Holy Spirit in a special way. And we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's something about blood. There's something about blood. From the very beginning, right after the fall, God's first gracious movement toward his now sinful crown of creation involved blood, the shedding of blood. Played a central role in our redemption. There were no witnesses to it, but the fact that God provided animal skins for Adam and Eve when they couldn't cover themselves shows us that there was the shedding of blood in order to redeem fallen sinners. There were no witnesses, but we can assume that since there was an animal killed, there was the shedding of blood. The shedding of animal blood is one thing, the shedding of human blood is quite another. As you know, tragically after the fall, shortly after the fall, Cain killed his brother Abel. And it's striking that God, when he's describing what he's discovered, when he's describing it to the murderer, he gives an intriguing quality to blood. Now, it's a metaphor, but he says this, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, as if it had its own life. This innocent blood crying out from the ground, this, this human blood that was shed, the very first human blood, 
that was shed. Now, this was murder. God condemns murder. It was clearly premeditated murder. It wasn't a sacrifice, and God never authorizes human sacrifice anyway. The closest we get is when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And it's a sublime incident. It's, it's an extraordinary incident. And, and it's probably the most vivid type or imagery of Christ that we have in the Old Testament. But we know that that couldn't happen. The writer of Hebrews uh, will explain some more of that later on. But there we have the closest thing we get at all to human sacrifice that's legitimate in any way. Other religions had human sacrifices but not God's religion, not God's religion. While human sacrifice is forbidden, uh, animal sacrifice was authorized. And very soon it was the sacrifice of animals again and again that became a legitimate act of worship. But it always pointed ahead to something that would be completed. It always pointed ahead to something that had to be fulfilled. Always pointed ahead to something that the blood of beasts couldn't do. Blood played a key role in all of Israel's worship, in the tabernacle worship as well, played a key role. In fact, it was part of the temple ritual for hundreds of years before it was brought to a grinding halt by the work of Jesus Christ. We'll get back to the blood that was shed in the Old Covenant, and we'll get back to the blood of Christ in a few moments, but for now, we have to review the regulations that were given, and Just like the writer of Hebrews, I won't go into details. He says he can't go into details, but if you think about the tabernacle and all the things in the tabernacle, all symbolizing the glory of God and his presence, and so many of them directly pointing to Christ, but he mentions some in a a broad way. And he has us keep in mind the backdrop of the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. But all these symbols, all these things done in the tabernacle pointed ahead to something greater. But there was a tent. There was a tent that God had ordained to be built, and he was very specific about the dimensions of the tent, the tabernacle. It was the established center of Israel's existence. And whenever God moved Israel, they were to bring the tabernacle with them. You know that in the future, it wasn't until they got into the promised land, and in fact Jerusalem, that there would be a more permanent structure, the temple. But the tabernacle was the one ordained place for sacred worship. And it was prepared in great detail. And if you read the details about the beautiful tapestry and all the things in there that were made to perfection, layers of animal skins, layers of weaving, lots of gold and other items as well. It was a magnificent structure for its day. But this tent was prepared for worship. And in the first section was the holy place, right? And he mentions that that it was all filled with significant things. One of the things that you don't think about often is that it was all shrouded in lily white to show the holiness of God. Lampstand showed the light of the world, table of bread and the presence showing the bread of life. And that was the holy place. But then there was the holy of holies, that inner sanctuary that the priest could only go in one time a year. And in that holy of holies, according to the writer of Hebrews, 
Behind this second curtain was a golden altar of incense. Now, if you're an astute student of the temple and the tabernacle, that was actually supposed to be outside of the Holy of Holies. And some say that it was because the author of Hebrews is saying, because Christ is in the Holy of Holies, he places it within the Holy of Holies because it represents the prayers of the priest and the prayers of God's people. But inside that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, with a cherubim on top of it. That was called the mercy seat that represented propitiation or satisfaction for sin. And so inside that Holy of Holies was where God would meet with the priest in a super intense way. There was the ark that reminded the people of God's faithfulness and his power with the manna and the staff that budded and the tablets of the law. But that represented going into the presence of God, that, what, that which they were cut off from back in the garden. Now, through the priest, they could get back into fellowship, representative-wise, into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. The second thing he mentions is the priest. And the reason he doesn't go into detail is because he'll go into detail in other places about both the temporal, the tabernacle and the priest. But the priest is that mediator between God and man. He had to go in. He had to cleanse himself, but go in there to represent the people of Israel and plead with God for the forgiveness of their sins. And he had these tremendous duties that he had to prepare for entry. He had to prepare himself. He had to prepare all the items of the tabernacle. All these things representing the removal of sin because he was a sinner and the people were sinners. But to keep in with our theme, there was blood involved in this and there was blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. Some people faint at the very sight of blood. You could not be squeamish if you were a priest. There was blood everywhere. There was blood splattered. There was blood sprinkled. There was blood spilt. But all this blood represented somehow this blood that seems to speak to us of death represented life itself. Life itself. You see, every time that a sacrifice was made, blood was spilt. And and just as, as death has its own gravitas, as we saw in times past, if the life is in the blood, the spilling of blood has gravitas too. It reminds us of death, but as it says in Scripture, there's life in the blood. There's life in the blood. So the red blood reminds us of death, death, death. But in God's ways, it reminds us of life, life, life. It's blood. It's blood. Surely, surely scientifically, it's just an element, right? Let me sound like something someone else for a minute. Let me sound like a science guy, which is about as far as you can get from the truth. Blood consists of cellular material, 99% red blood cells with white blood cells and platelets making up the remainder. Water, amino acids, proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, hormones, vitamins, electrolytes, dissolved gases, and cellular wastes. Each red blood cell is about one-third hemoglobin by volume, Plasma is about 92% water with plasma proteins as the most abundant solutes. The main plasma protein groups are albumins, globulins, here, here I don't sound like a science guy, 
fibrinogens, the primary blood gases are oxygen, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen. So it's stuff. It's, it's made up of elements, right? But somehow in Scripture, there's something very special about blood. Now, again, it might be metaphorical, but remember how God said about Abel's blood that it was crying out, this innocent blood crying out. But even animals, according to the way these things work, have an intriguing element to it. Listen to this from Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There's something about blood. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there is a lot of it. It's absolutely stunning how much blood is spilt in the Old Covenant way of worship. But it's all symbolic, it's all temporary. Look back in our passage of verses 8 and 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. It was necessary, it was significant, but it was temporary, symbolic. Writer of Hebrews says in the next chapter, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It represented the forgiveness of sins. It was sufficient for those who trusted in that to have their sins forgiven, but it was not complete. It's only when we get to Christ that we begin to understand at all the depths of the meaning that the life is in the blood. Only when we get to Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And not into an earthly tabernacle. But he had to be fit for heaven to win salvation, to open up heaven for us. And so Christ fulfills all that the tabernacle represented, all that the priests represented, all the requirements, and most importantly for our passage, the blood itself. Christ in one way represents the tabernacle itself and the Holy of Holies in that he was God in human form. He tabernacled among us. But it also teaches us that when he ascended, he ascended not to something made by man and not blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies, but blood that brought him into heaven itself that wins heaven for us. And then Christ, the high priest, the incarnate Son of God, again, the priest, but also the sacrifice, the true life is in his blood. And then the requirement of perfect holiness is that his blood would be that of a sinless, a sinless man. We've not known anyone like that. One sinless man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when this sinless man was murdered, 
from a human perspective, that killing of him was premeditated, orchestrated murder. But in the eyes of the triune God, from his perspective, it was the only sacrifice sufficient to save our souls and to make a way for us to be with him. And Christ went willingly. And it was all by his shedding his blood, giving his body and shedding his blood, his precious blood, the Lamb of God himself. So think about the blood. The life of Jesus' blood. Life in Jesus' blood is, is so more, much more mysterious and significant than we'll ever know. It's better blood than Abel. Judas even says that it was innocent blood. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. While there's something about blood, there's something entirely unique and life-saving about Jesus' blood. There's none like it. His blood was like our blood, but in a profound spiritual way, there's no blood like it. How odd in some ways, isn't it? that we sing so much about the blood of Jesus. We want to sing about the love of Jesus. I could sing of the love of God forever. But when we sing about the love of God, we have to always have in mind the blood of Jesus. I almost want to apologize for quoting so many songs about the blood of Jesus, but without the blood of Jesus, we don't have really much to sing about, do we? Isaac Watts understates it when he says, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Think of the blood of Jesus. Think of his tears in Gethsemane when he was looking forward to the cross, the joy set before him, Jesus is looking at the cross, realizing the weight of it, and shedding blood through his sweat. Tis midnight and, for others' guilt, the man of sorrow, the man of sorrows, weeps in blood. Yet he that hath in anguish knelt is not forsaken by his God. Jesus is arrested and he's bludgeoned and he's bloody. And then he's scourged by a Roman scourge, ripping his flesh and spilling his blood. This is not a song, but it's a prophecy. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Then they put a crown of thorns on his head, poking the flesh of his crown of his head. And blood undoubtedly spilt down his face. O sacred head, now wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns his only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. 
And then they drove pegs through his hands and his feet. And then they shoved a sword through his side and out came blood and water. And then when enough blood was drained from his body, he gave up the spirit and became lifeless. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? But the most striking thing, perhaps, next to the fact that the Son of the living God, fully God and fully man, dies on the cross, that mystery that so many want to sing about, that, that Charles Wesley wrote about, tis mystery all, the immortal dies, that beyond our comprehension, next to that is the fact that it was for us. It's for us. It was for me. So horrible, so bloody, so necessary for our redemption. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It was for us so that we we might have our sins forgiven. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's our only boast. It's our only boast. Can you sing this? Can you sing this? Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Can you say this? Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, from the very beginning, blood needed to be shed to point us to redemption. That was completed when Jesus gave himself on the cross and shed his blood for us. And it is finished. And he's glorified. And yet we will be mindful, even in eternity, that he was indeed the lamb that was slain even when there's no more shedding of blood ever, the blood of Christ, I am sure, will still be on our hearts and on our minds. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Lord our God, we know that there was so much more involved in our salvation than even the shedding of Jesus' blood. We know that he had to be the eternal son of the living God. We know that he had to be one with our human flesh 
taking upon himself our human flesh, fully God and fully man. We know that he had to live a perfect life and bear the sin and punishment that we deserve. We know that when he bore our sins, that he undertook all the wrath that we deserve. But Lord, we continually turn back to the blood of Jesus because we know that in his blood there is life and it was shed for us. Help us, Lord, to appreciate more the great sacrifice made for sinners like us. We give you all the praise and all the glory for the kind of love you've shown to us by sending your Son, the love of the Son who willingly gave himself for us and for the Holy Spirit who has enlightened our hearts and burned these glorious truths into our very souls. Amen.